Hello, and welcome back to the Pediatric Focus Podcast. I'm Tom Mate. Way back in 2010, Dr. Samuel Lamb and his colleagues published the very first paper on the effect that bedside ultrasound has on pediatric skin and soft tissue infections in the pediatric emergency department. It was a prospective observational study that consisted of about 50 patients and looked at using ultrasound to differentiate between cellulitis and abscess. They found that bedside ultrasound changed clinical management in about 22% of cases, either by identifying subclinical abscesses or preventing unnecessary procedures on patients who had ambiguous exams without a drainable fluid collection. This was consistent with subsequent studies, which have found that ultrasound leads to roughly a 15 to 25% change in clinical management. Well, since then, Dr. Lamb has been busy. He just wrapped up his tenure as the research director for the P2 Network and was the first author on a multi-center study, again investigating the effectiveness of using bedside ultrasound for soft tissue infections. On the show today, we'll review that article, then talk with Dr. Lamb about the study as well as to get some insight as to how to get involved with multi-center pediatric POCUS research. The study was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine and was titled Comparison of Ultrasound Guidance versus Clinical Assessment Alone for Management of Pediatric Skin and Soft Tissue Infections. This was a prospective cohort observational study that enrolled patients at seven tertiary pediatric ERs around North America. Its purpose was to study the effect that bedside soft tissue ultrasound has on the clinical management of skin and soft tissue infections in the ER and whether its use affects outcomes. They included children 6 months to 18 years who had lesions at least 1 centimeter large. After children were enrolled, patients were treated by the providers with standard management, which may or may not have included a bedside ultrasound. These groups were not randomized, and not all providers were POCUS credentialed. The decision to use a bedside ultrasound for treatment guidance was at the discretion of the provider's clinical judgment. Providers were then asked to rate how suspicious they were about a fluid collection, from 0 to 100. Then they recorded their ultrasound findings and rated how useful the ultrasound was in their decision-making. Finally, they were asked whether there was a change in the management plan after POCUS was performed. Some examples include medical-to-surgical management, surgical-to-medical management, consultation of a specialist, adding packing to an IND, etc. Follow-up occurred 7 to 10 days after ED discharge. They were looking for unscheduled ED, or outpatient visits, unplanned admissions, recurrent abscesses, repeat or new incisions, or initiation or change in antibiotics. These were considered treatment failures of the initial visit. In the end, there were about 300 patients included in the study, about 200 in the POCUS group and 90 in the non-POCUS group. The two groups were demographically similar, and figure two breaks down how useful the treating clinician found ultrasound compared to how suspicious they were about a fluid pocket. When the clinician was confident in his or her diagnosis, ultrasound was not perceived to be very helpful. For example, when there was a 90% certainty that a patient had an abscess, ultrasound didn't change management. However, when there was ambiguity, such as when there was a 40-60% to suspicion of an abscess, clinicians rated ultrasound utility as 92 out of 100. Bedside ultrasound changed the management plan in 23% of cases, about half the time from medical to surgical and the other half surgical to medical. There were no differences in discharge rate or ED lengths of stay. Interestingly on follow-up, there was no significant difference in treatment failure between the two groups, despite there being a 23% change in the management in the POCUS group. 
A possible explanation given by the authors is that the POCUS group had a higher clinical suspicion for abscess and higher rates of incision and drainage. Because abscesses are more notorious for treatment failure than cellulitis at baseline, the POCUS group should be expected to be inherently more prone to treatment failures. The overall sensitivity and specificity of POCUS guidance was 90% and 80%, with positive and negative likelihood ratios of 4.5 and 0.12, compared to clinical assessment alone having an overall sensitivity and specificity of 76% and 94%, with positive and negative likelihood ratios of 12.4 and 0.25. Some other benefits were that 22% of clinicians in the POCUS group used ultrasound to visualize anatomy and guide their procedures, and multiple providers commented that ultrasound better explained the need for drainage to the families. That was a very long way for me to introduce Dr. Samuel Lamb, who was the principal investigator on this study. He is here to talk about some of the nuance and insights from the article, as well as the state of pediatric POCUS research. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Lamb. Would you care to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Sam Lamb, and I work at the Southern Medical Center in Sacramento, California, where we have a uh, adult and pediatric emergency department. I am their ultrasound director at the site. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you are both adult and pediatric trained. So I did my residency in emergency medicine. Um, I did a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship and that was followed by an ultrasound fellowship. So what was your motivation for doing a multicenter study to use ultrasound to differentiate abscess from cellulitis? So Adam Sivitz and I did a study way back when I was in Boston on actually skin and soft tissue infection as well, and he was at Brown at that time. So it was technically a multi-institution, it was a two-institutional study, but um, we look at that question, and I felt that we can sort of expand on that and uh, look at that a little bit more in depth as well. That's why I had a little bit of experience. I, I thought I would just carry on that, that experience and make it a little bit more improved and better study. Gotcha. And uh, how did this study expand on your previous study? I, I think the difference between our study and initial study, it's the outcome that we look at. Um, the initial study looked at the change in clinician decision-making as well as the sensitivity and the specificity of using POCUS. And in this one, we actually look at the outcome of treatment failure as well as some secondary outcome as well, which is not looked at in a previous study. And certainly having a lot more institution, having some institution is a lot more complex than having two institutions in New England that have very similar practice as well. Right. Sure. And so in the intro, we reviewed some of the broad strokes of the article, and I was hoping to get into some of the finer details. Uh, Did you find a difference in accuracy or skill between the various levels of providers? Yeah, actually, we have mostly just attending and fellows doing ultrasound. We didn't have that many residents. And honestly, it's a worthwhile project looking at the residents versus the attendings and the fellows, we actually did not look into that because we didn't have enough number to um, look into that as well. So this was attendings and fellows in the emergency department who are likely quite experienced with diagnosing abscesses versus cellulitis. And yet you still found quite a large proportion of ultrasounds that led to um, a clinical practice change of some kind. Correct, yeah. 
this is pretty consistent with the literature out there. If you look at the literature in skin and soft tissue infection and pediatric uh, emergency medicine, I, I think the ballpark figure is always between 20 and 25% in change in management. Um, there are a few studies out there, and the, the figure has been fairly consistent, actually. So why do you think, then, that there wasn't any difference in outcomes between the two groups? I, I think there are maybe a couple of reasons for that. At least I have a couple of theories for that. I remember when I was in medical school, um, one of the professors were talking about variation in practice in medicine. And what he said was basically, we all get there eventually the same end point. It's just that we take different routes to get there. And my my feeling is, you know, there are people that they are trained in ultrasound, they're good in ultrasound, and they use that piece of information to help them make the decision. And it worked out really well and changed practice, it changed actually the plan in about you know one quarter, one in five cases. And there are practitioners and their providers that really are not trained in ultrasound and they're not comfortable using ultrasound. And um, in that case, they make up for that lack of information, lack of piece of information by either the experience, because my suspicion is that they're probably a little bit more experienced than the ones that use ultrasound, or they can make up for that lack of uh, piece of information by getting a formal ultrasound or using a consultant to help them manage the patient. So they all sort of get there and the outcome is not any different. Um, and my second thought is that, so we don't tell people whether you get an ultrasound or not an ultrasound when you come across a skin and soft infection. You basically just see, hey, was ultrasound used and what was the outcome? So it's purely an observational perspective, observational study. Perhaps the kids that did not get the ultrasound were the ones that people are certain about the diagnosis. So you don't need ultrasound to confirm uh, your findings. So you just kind of go straight to like a medical management or surgical management. So perhaps these kids are uh, uh, the kids with higher certainty. And if I would do this over again, I'd probably make it a randomized controlled trial to mm. get rid of that bias. I don't think we've drilled down to the provider level kind of decision making and, and, and we kind of separate the bias of um, certainty from non-certainty. So if I would do it over again, I would probably do a randomized controlled trial and that would help us uh, look at the issue of, you know, whether uh, ultrasound is used for certain cases or uncertain cases. Yeah, that makes sense to me to get rid of some of that bias. I know you're aware of this one, but for the listeners at home, there was a paper in Annals of Emergency Medicine back in March uh, by Maurer et al. Uh, that made headlines essentially stating that ultrasound is rarely useful in skin and soft tissue infections. And POCUS skeptics, um, especially here at our institution, are seeming to latch on to it. Do you have an idea of why they had such a different conclusion so I, I think they do good quality work. I mean, there's quite a bit of difference between our population and their population. Mostly we do kids, and then they mostly do adults. Um, and their lesions tend to be a little bit bigger as well. Our cutoff is one centimeter. Their cutoff is two. And their experience, their ultrasonography experience, tend to be a little bit more spread out than we do. I mean, we have mostly just attendings and fellows trained in ultrasound. And they have different attendings, fellows, residents, uh, different provider experience level as well. But most importantly, I think it's a certainty 
of an abscess versus cellulitis, it, it seems like 90% of the time they are pretty certain about whether there is an abscess or a cellulitis. Whereas if you look at our article, our um, basically certainty, we go from a scale of zero to 100, our certainty it's between 50 and 60, depending on what group you look at, a POCUS group versus non-POCUS group, but our certainty is a lot less in terms of uh, abscess versus a cellulitis. So as we talked about before, I think if you have a little bit less certainty, ultrasound become more useful. And in fact, that's what they found. They found that in the cases that are uncertain, they found pretty much the same thing we do. In fact, they found like one out of four, one out of five actually had a change in management if mm-hmm. you use ultrasound. And that's very congruent with our findings. What else? What else did you find either exciting or were you surprised by in your study? Um, I think one of the things that people talk about a lot is that in addition to the change of management, it helps um, the buy-in from the parents. So it's one of the things I didn't realize. A lot of people right. comment on the help of the ultrasound. They say, look, you know, you show this picture on the screen to the parent and they're a lot more comfortable with the child going through a procedure that may potentially be invasive because they can actually see a fluid collection there. They understand what the image means. And it really helped um, with the management of the child, which uh, we did mention in an article, but there was not something that we looked at. But there were a lot of people commenting on it. So we actually included that in our discussion. Yeah, that's right. You know, it must be so difficult for parents who only see a little red bump and don't understand what's underneath the skin when they when they consider putting their child through possibly a sedation and an invasive painful procedure. I feel like that is one of the secondary benefits of ultrasound that we don't really talk about a lot. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's generalizable to a lot of ultrasound. I mean, you show patient the image you know, off a heart, a gallbladder, or a baby, they immediately understand. I think, you know, patients in general understand the image a lot more. So, you know, picture is worth a thousand words, and then you can sort of go through a management plan with them. And and it's the same reason why you show patients, you know, fracture x-ray, right? You want to show them where the fracture is, what it looks like, how to manage it. And people are like, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, this is what the fracture is, or this is what the problem is. And they're a lot more on board with the management plan. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And how do you think we should be using this study to help guide our management down in the emergency department? I think if um, you are someone that is trained in ultrasound, that's comfortable with ultrasound, I would encourage you to use it to help with the management and skin and soft tissue infection. And this is especially in the case when you're not very certain about um, whether there is fluid collection or whether it's just a cellulitis. I think it makes a huge difference. And, and like we said before, about one out of four, one of five cases, it can potentially change your management. And this is especially true if you are less certain about um, whether you want to go through procedure or not. And this is what we found as well. The higher uncertainty, the more useful people find the focus, uh, the ultrasound is. Awesome. And looking at ultrasound research more broadly, you just finished your time as the research chair of the P2 Network. What else were you working on in that role? 
So my goal uh, as the research committee chair in P2 were twofold. One is to help promote multi-institutional, multi-center research. And two was to build a sort of a platform or infrastructure so that people want to do multi-institutional, multi-center, PEMPOCUS research can have something to fall back on. So majority of my time is was spent developing protocols that is sponsor that is kind of a P2 initiated research protocol and PEMPOCUS. And there were two of them. And second is to coordinate the existing study. We actually had an interception study. By the time I, I started my term, there was the P2 interception study was started. So I helped coordinate and make sure that the logistic is smooth. And then um, at the same time, there are other what we call non-P2 sponsor study. And I would uh, communicate with the investigators and to try to help them improve the protocol if I would and to recruit sites to help out with the study because you know we have a pretty good membership base and what makes research successful it's it's really a good active participation and we want to encourage that and through time we sort of develop a kind of a, a standard protocol where we have training videos for a certain study sponsored by P2. We have a certain um, flow format, so to speak, on how subjects are recruited, how sites are recruited, and we have a flow diagram that we keep reusing and keep modifying. So I think we have somewhat of a um, framework of protocol in place, and we have some of a structure in place that we can use um, over the last couple of years when we were developing all these P2 sponsored protocols. Very cool. And then what comes next? What are you guys working on now? So um, right now we have a P2 sponsored study on the use of point of care ultrasound in chest trauma, which has been sanctioned approved by the, the executive committee and, and uh, it's in the works at the ILB. So I'm hoping that we can roll that out pretty soon over the next few months and start recruiting sites and recruiting patients. And certainly we need a lot of sites for that because the incidence of injury in pediatric chest trauma is pretty low. So we certainly need a lot of sites to do that. The second things we're working on, which is kind of fresh off the press right now, is we're trying to compile a white paper in terms of the research priorities that in the pediatric pediatric emergency medicine POCUS world. You know, what's important in PEN POCUS? What are the topics we want to research? What are the important issues we need to address here? So we're working on that white paper, and it's really in the beginning stage, but we have a writing group together, and we're going to work on this over the next year or two. Gotcha. And so for those of us who aren't doing multi-center research yet, um, what does it take to be on the team, to be a part of um, one of your projects? I, I think P2 is a small enough network that will welcome anybody to participate. I mean, it's, it's basically a member-driven network, and it's small enough that anybody who wants to participate, it's welcome to participate in our studies. But um, what we ask is basically you have a basic POCUS kind of a structure in place. You have to have a POCUS director, you have a mechanism for credentialing, and you have to have a mechanism for QAing, just uh, doing quality assurance or basically image review of your images as well. And, and as long as you have that structure in place, you're welcome to join for our study. But uh, the other thing that we always ask for is commitment. You know, people 
um, always ask, how long does study take? And I always say, look, you know, it, it sometimes it takes longer than you thought. But generally speaking, right. I'm hoping that most study would be wrapped up within the two, three year framework. So I think the commitment is also important as well. If you have commitment for two to three years and you have the infrastructure in place, we always welcome you to join. Well, Dr. Samuel Lamb, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. A big thank you to Dr. Lamb for taking the time to talk with me. The process of multi-center studies feels so daunting, and I have tremendous respect for those who are able to do it and to do it well, and hopefully you'll be able to assimilate this data into your own practice. Our conversation was actually a lot longer, but we trimmed it down for the episode. Otherwise, thanks to everyone out there who has sent in ideas, feedback, and general comments. Podcasting and whatever this is is so one-sided that when I hear that someone listened to the show, it's still quite surprising. I apologize for the hiatus last month, and for everyone who wrote to check in, thank you. Um, And yes, we are still planning for a monthly series, and we should be back to our regular schedule. As always, you can find references to the literature cited in the podcast on our show notes, and otherwise, we will see you next time. 